And David said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Truya, that you should this day be adversaries unto me? Shall there any man be put to death this day in Israel? And do not I know that I am this day king over Israel? Therefore the king said unto Shimei, Thou shalt not die. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 96, David, Lincoln, and Humility. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. What is humility? In 1998, the Journal of Philosophy held a symposium in which its respondents sought to define what exactly humility is. One philosopher, Judith Driver, in an essay titled The Virtue of Ignorance, argued that humility is, quote, underestimating one's worth, end quote. In other words, one is admirably modest if one mistakenly believes that one is less important than one truly is. This explanation of humility is a common one, but it is, as the philosopher George Schlesinger notes in a response, not the Jewish understanding of this virtue. And ever since Schlesinger referred me to this discussion, I have agreed with Schlesinger's point. Let us, for example, take the most famous biblical verse about humility. Adam. Moses was the most humble man that ever lived. Now, for traditional Judaism, who wrote this sentence? Moses himself, meaning that Moses knew that he was the most humble man that ever lived. Indeed, according to Judaism, the greatness of Moses is one of the foundations of our faith, which means that Moses himself would have been religiously obligated to acknowledge his own greatness. To put it another way, if Moses did not acknowledge that he was the greatest religious figure in history, then he wouldn't be the greatest religious figure in history. This means that true humility in leaders cannot, should not, mandate a denial of one's talents, abilities, and greatness. Rather, humility involves pairing a recognition of one's gifts with an understanding of one's utter nothingness when one compares oneself to the wisdom, power, and providence of Almighty God. Thus, for a leader to adopt a Jewish approach to humility is for that leader to embrace a dialectic. One is obligated simultaneously to believe that, on the one hand, to paraphrase Isaiah Berlin, great statesmen conduct history the way maestros conduct their orchestra, and on the other hand, this awareness must be combined with a recognition that there is something, someone much greater than that statesman, who is the true conductor of history. And this means that for the Jewish statesman, at times bold action is required, but at times what is demanded is instead an acceptance of what one believes to be God's plan. Is such a dialectic possible? Can one combine two seemingly opposite notions? Today we will give two examples, one ancient and the other American, that embody the biblical approach to humility. These examples will indicate the impact of the Hebrew Bible and of David's story on the greatest of American presidents. Following David's sin with Bathsheba, Nathan promises the king that a terrible punishment is coming that will ravage David's house, and the prophecy comes to full fulfillment in our chapter. Welcomed back to court by his father, Avshalom cultivates popularity among the people and plots a rebellion. Leaving the capital, he puts his plan into place. Chapter 15, verse 10. But Avshalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the shofar, then ye shall say, Avshalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Avshalom went two hundred men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. And Avshalom sent for Achitophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Avshalom. 
And there came a messenger to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Avshalom. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Avshalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. Thus David the king flees his son in disgrace. And as he does so, he encounters Shimi, son of Gera, a man from the house of Saul, who sees David as a usurper, and he therefore curses David. Those loyal to David wish to kill Shimi, but David says no. Chapter 16, verse 5. And when King David came to Bachurim, behold, thence came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimi, the son of Gera. He came forth and cursed still as he came, and he cast stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And thus said Shimi when he cursed, Come out, come out, thou bloody man, and thou man without the yoke of God. The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hands of Avshalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. Then said Avishai the son of Tzeruiah unto the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. And the king said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Tzeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. Thus David does not allow Avishai son of Tzeruiah to punish Shimei. Why? What does David mean? when he says that the Lord has said to Shimei to curse the king. David, of course, does not mean that Shimei is acting on prophetic instruction. Rather, David is reflecting his understanding that all that has come upon him and his house, leading up to and including Shimei's curses, is a punishment for his own sins in the story of Bathsheba. As such, David believes that he must respond, even to those who hate him, with humility, in the knowledge that this rebellion is brought upon him by God. But that, of course, does not mean that David will refrain from fighting the rebellion and seeking to defeat it. Avshalom ignores the counsel of his father's former advisor, Achitophel. Rather than immediately pursuing David, Avshalom allows David to escape and regroup. When the battle between the two forces finally is joined, Avshalom's forces are defeated and Avshalom's hair is caught by the branch of a tree and he is trapped. David has ordered that Avshalom his son is not to be harmed, but Yoav ignores the edict. Chapter 18, verse 14. Then said Yoav, I may not tarry thus with thee. And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Avshalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. Thus Avshalom dies, and David mourns his son in one of the most famous verses in the book of Samuel. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O my son Avshalom, my son, my son Avshalom, would God I had died for thee, O Avshalom, my son, my son. As David returns to Jerusalem, Shimei, seeing that the rebellion has been defeated, begs forgiveness. Chapter 19, verse 18. And Shimei the son of Gera fell down before the king as he was come over the Jordan and said unto the king, Let not my lord impute iniquity unto me, neither do thou remember that which thy servant did perversely the day that my lord the king went out of Jerusalem. Avishai again wants Shimei killed, but again David says no. Verse 22. And David said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Truya? that you should this day be adversaries unto me. Shall there any man be put to death this day in Israel? And do not I know that I am this day king over Israel? Therefore the king said unto Shimei, Thou shalt not die. Once more, David passively and humbly expresses his belief and understanding that this is part of God's punishment that he must bear. But here is what's interesting. 
At the end of his life, David will warn Solomon that Shimei is clearly disloyal and poses a threat to the future of the kingdom, and that Solomon must act. Humility, then, does not mean total passivity. But humility, David believes, requires him to reflect realizations of his own sins and punishment. And David decides that he will reflect this understanding in refusing to punish Shimei at this point. Interestingly, it is clear that the story of David, the civil war with Avshalom, and the story of Shimei was studied by Abraham Lincoln during his own experience of a civil war. Joseph Gillespie, a friend of Lincoln's from Illinois, reports that he asked Lincoln what would be done with the rebels after the war. Quote, Well, said he, some think their heads ought to come off, but there are too many of them for that, and for one, I would not know where to draw the line between those whose heads it might be said ought to come off or stay on. My policy would be different, he said. I would prefer to follow the example of King David. I have been recently reading the history of the rebellion of Absalom and would be inclined to adopt the views of David. When David was fleeing from Jerusalem, Shimei cursed him. After the rebellion was put down, Shimei craved a pardon. Abishai, David's nephew, the son of Teruah, David's sister, said, This man ought not to be pardoned because he cursed the Lord's anointed. David said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Teruah, that you should this day be adversaries unto me? Know ye that not a man shall be put to death in Israel. End quote. This, according to Gillespie, were Lincoln's words to him. Why does Lincoln compare himself to David? Lincoln seems to be saying that just as David might fight against the treasonous rebellion of Avshalom, while understanding that the rebellion is coming as a punishment for his own sins, so too Lincoln believes that the American North must fight the treasonous rebellion of the South while simultaneously understanding that the tremendous sufferings of the war was a punishment for all Americans, North and South. This view Lincoln made clear in his second inaugural, which Caitlin Kuyper has rightly called a, quote, comprehensive but harrowing theodicy of American history, stretching back before the nation's founding, end quote. Lincoln argued that the blood lost by all Americans in the war, North and South, was a punishment for America's original acceptance of slavery. Thus Lincoln's words in his second inaugural address. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away, yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. These are Lincoln's words. Standing on the Capitol steps in 1865, only weeks from Appomattox and with Union victory as certainty, one would have expected the President of the United States to triumphantly celebrate himself and the valor of his soldiers, to rejoice in the coming ending of the war. Yet Lincoln did no such thing. The verse he quoted that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether was taken from the Psalms of David. Rather than exhibit pride, Lincoln reflected humility. As the historian Paul Johnson wrote, quote, It is impossible to imagine Lincoln's European contemporaries, Napoleon III, Bismarck, Gambetta, Thiers, Garibaldi, Cavour, Marx, or Disraeli thinking in these terms. Gladstone, it is true, Johnson continued, might have done so, but he would not have ventured to publicize his thinking in a critical address or even to his cabinet colleagues. Lincoln did so, writes Johnson, in the certainty that most of his countrymen and women could and did think along similar lines, end quote. Lincoln wrote a few days after the second inaugural that that speech proclaimed, quote, 
a truth which I thought needed to be told, and as whatever of humiliation there is in it falls most directly on myself, I thought others might afford an occasion for me to tell it. End quote. Thus, in his speech, Lincoln quoted David, and, motivated by the story of David and of those who rebelled against David, Lincoln sought to learn from David in the hope that he would be worthy of serving as God's leader of America, which Lincoln referred to as the almost chosen people. We close then today with the conclusion of the greatest speech in American history, the Second Inaugural, which we now know was inspired by David's example and by David's words. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.